Amen. You can have a seat. Um, Well, today we're going to read a story. It is a story about a specific tree in the Bible. Um, It's a famous tree uh, with famous fruit. And we all know the story, right? Uh, God tells Adam and Eve that uh, they cannot eat from this one tree. And then one day a talking snake comes along and convinces them to eat the fruit, and the entire world falls apart as a result, right? Because of this one bad decision made by Adam and Eve. We all know this story, but I'm not sure we actually understand the story because it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? That, that eating the fruit of this one tree would carry such horrible consequences. And in fact, uh, why would God forbid them to eat the fruit of this one tree? What's so special about this one tree? Why just one rule? And uh, do you remember what the name of this tree is? Anybody remember? Tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil. Now, what does that mean? Uh, If it means knowing the difference between good and evil or Right and wrong, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that something we should want? Why would God forbid that? Why why would God forbid them to eat from this tree if eating from this tree will actually give them this, this thing? See, we know the story, but I'm not sure we understand it. Um, So today we're going to jump in and tackle it together. We're in this series called Reforesting Faith, and uh, we're asking what can we learn from trees? And seeds and plants and vegetables and and vegetation and fruit. What can we learn from trees about God and about ourselves and about the world? Now, before we um, reread the details of this story in the early part of Genesis and this Adam and Eve and this tree, right? There's a question we have to address first. And it's this. Is this a real and true story, right? Now, if by this question we mean a different question, this one, are the stories in Genesis 1 through 3 written to be scientifically accurate, historically verifiable, and journalistically factual accounts of what literally happened as we've come to expect from modern news reports, then the answer is probably no, right? Because that would be imposing our expectations about what is real and true on stories that are not actually written that way. I mean, when you read these accounts, it's pretty clear. They're not meant to be scientific textbooks. They're not meant to be modern news reports. There's all sorts of of poetic elements in these stories and symbolic elements and and figurative elements. And, And none of those things undermine its reality or its truth. And so if you ask simply, is this a real and true story? And I think the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, these stories in early Genesis, they they portray something real and true and historical about God and about creation and about beauty and about humanity. They just do it in a creative way. They do it in the way that a painting portrays truth or the way a a poem portrays truth or, or maybe even in the way a parable portrays truth, right? Jesus told these parables all the time that had really vivid details and these vivid characters that were based on real life circumstances. But the the point of his stories was always to teach truth about God and about ourselves and about this world. 
And so that's what these creation accounts are doing in Genesis as well. So with all that in mind, let's jump in. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man. Uh, Just quick side note, uh, the word man there is the word Adam in Hebrew. Um, That's later going to become this man's name, but at this point it's not his name, it's just the man. Adam means human being. In fact, the woman that's going to be with them will later become Eve, but the word Eve in Hebrew just means life or living. So these two people are really just representing humanity. They're representing all of us. So he puts the man that he had formed in this garden, and then the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So humanity's first relationship is not just with God. It's also this deep and meaningful relationship with trees. I mean, trees are so prominent in this story, you can't miss it, right? We're told God plants a garden, and the word for garden here, it can mean like a little vegetable garden. It can mean a huge orchard or a vineyard. It could even mean an enclosed park area like Wash Park or or City Park or or Rocky Mountain National Park. But it says this, this garden park is full of trees. It's full of trees that are beautiful and trees that have all kinds of food and fruit. Uh, When I was a kid, um, my uh, family took a vacation to the Amish country of Pennsylvania. I was like six or seven years old. And I remember one day we went to a cherry orchard. Now, if you know me, you know I love cherries. I loved them as a kid. I loved them as an adult. I think they are one of God's greatest creations, especially the really bright red ones called maraschino cherries right? Because that's exactly how God created them. Um, but I love cherries. And so we went to this cherry orchard and uh, there were, I was like six or seven and there were um, ladders at all the trees and you could just climb up the ladder and you were handed a bucket and you could just go to the top and you could pick cherries for as long as you want. And you could fill the bucket up and you could fill your mouth up with cherries. And I chose the ladder and I just was there for, I don't, it felt like hours and hours doing nothing but eating cherries. And I could have stayed there my entire life. And when I think about Eden, that's what I think of. Like cherry trees as far as the eye can see. Now, we're told there were also two special trees right in the middle of this garden, which is interesting because most of us just remember the one tree, but there are two trees. The first one we're told is the tree of life and the other is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, uh, after this, we're not going to read this part. We're told that there are these rivers that are going through the garden and they're watering and nourishing the trees. But then the story says this. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So humanity has a job. We're to take care of this garden. And the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, it's easy to focus on the second part, but let's not forget the first part. Notice how much 
freedom is given here. You are free to eat from any of these trees. You can have peaches or mangoes or pineapples or apples or pears or cherries, right? And the implication is it's not just trees, but there's all sorts of, of plants and vegetation in this garden. You can have tomatoes and, and lettuce and spinach and green beans and sweet potatoes and, and corn and, and almonds and, and olive oil and dates and hops and barley. And, and you can have chips and salsa if you want, right? You can, you can make beer or wine if you want. You, you can make croissants and put Nutella and sugar on top. Like you can, you can have anything you want from this garden, all right? So there's this huge freedom given there. Except this one tree. Don't eat from that one. And the language is, is pretty strong here. It's not like you shouldn't eat from this tree. It's you must not eat from this tree. Because if you do, you will definitely, certainly, no doubt about it, die as a result. Now, let's talk about these two trees in the middle of the garden. The tree of life is actually described in two other passages in the Bible. Um, it's described later in Genesis 3. It says that those who take and eat from the tree of life will live forever. And then at the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which is also a book of rich and vivid symbols and imagery, uh, we're given a picture and a vision of the new heavens and the new earth and this new Eden where we're going to live. And it says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life. So it's not just one tree, it's like a whole grove of trees on either side of the river bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. What tree does that? It has fruit all the time. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will reign forever and ever. So the tree of life, we're told, gives nourishment. It gives healing. It's a symbol of the kind of abundant and eternal life that God offers us. Which means in the Garden of Eden, humanity had access to this kind of eternal life with God. That's what the tree of life is symbolizing. Which brings up an interesting question. Uh, did death exist in the Garden of Eden, in the original order of creation? I think it almost certainly did, right? I mean, grass will die in the summer heat. Plants will die when humans eat them. Some cherry seeds most cherry seeds, probably that fall from the cherry trees, will fall to the ground and not regenerate, not sprout. They will die. They will not turn into new trees. Can you imagine a world where every seed becomes a new plant and a new tree, where every animal lives forever? That's an unsustainable world. That's, that's not something that even makes sense. The earth couldn't sustain a world that had no death in it. So death, little d, death, seems like it was just a part of the natural order of creation. Things will decay and eventually die. 
And so we have to think that human bodies, just like animal bodies, would eventually decay and die. But in the Garden of Eden, when you live life with God, when you have access to the tree of life, you have a way of being sustained. You have a way of being nourished. You have a way of experiencing healing in the face of a decaying body. You have a way to experience life with God forever. Now, in the New Testament, Paul will talk about a different kind of death, a capital D death that is not part of creation, that is the enemy of God and of all creation. But in the garden, the tree of life seems to represent eternal and abundant life with God that is offered to us. So there's this tree of life, but then there's also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, Now, the Hebrew word for knowledge can mean a number of things. Uh, It can mean information, like in our head that we take in and we have. Um, Knowledge, uh, this word for knowledge can also mean experiential knowledge. Uh, Just uh, a couple of chapters later, it's going to say that Adam knows his wife Eve, and that produces a child. So this is intimate experiential knowledge. But the most common way this word knowledge is used throughout the Old Testament is to refer to wisdom, a sort of insight and understanding, a wisdom that understands the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, the path that we need to take and the path we need to avoid. And that's a really important quality that we need to acquire as human beings, right? If you read the book of Proverbs, all it talks about is acquiring this kind of wisdom, longing after this kind of wisdom in life. Uh, The book of James says that we need to seek this kind of wisdom and ask God for it. And then look at this exchange between one of the kings of Israel, hundreds of years later, his name is Solomon. He prays a prayer to God and look at what he says. First Kings chapter three. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant, he's talking about himself, king in place of my father, David. But I am only a little child. And by that, he doesn't mean he's literally a little child. He means I'm new to this whole king thing. I'm young. I'm immature. I'm not really sure what to do. I need wisdom. So he says, I'm only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. It's the same exact words that are used in the beginning of Genesis to distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong. Look at how God responds. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for a long life or for wealth, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, you could ask for all those things, but you asked for this. Since you asked for this, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart. So this This knowledge of good and evil, this this wisdom for distinguishing between what is right and wrong, it's actually a really good thing. It's something we should seek. It's something we should desire. It's something we should long for. It's something that we need. And so for Adam and Eve, it seems like this second tree could be like this first tree. If you want life with God, you eat from the tree of life. If you want wisdom, 
to know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, then you should eat from this second tree, the tree of wisdom or knowledge of good and evil. But if that's the case, why in the world would God say, don't eat from that tree? It doesn't make sense. If, if this tree provides the kind of wisdom that the rest of the Bible seems to say is something we should want and desire and that we need, it doesn't make sense that God would say, don't eat from that tree, which is partly the argument that the snake is going to make. Look at the exchange that takes place. The serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman who again is Eve, she gets this name later, but she's just the woman here, said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. She's talking about the tree of knowledge. And you must not touch it or you will die. So the snake challenges Eve and Eve's like, no, no, no. Adam told me what God said, and I'm pretty clear on it. God told us we can't eat from this tree. If we do, and we're not even going to touch it, right, then we will die. It's a good job for Eve. Round one goes to Eve, right? But the snake continues. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the implication is that God is, is keeping something from you. He's got something behind his back that he doesn't want you to have. He's keeping it only for himself. That's part of the lie. Right? That God has something good and he's keeping it from you. And honestly, it's a lie that we believe every single time we read some sort of uh, command or teaching or instruction in the Bible or we seem to receive some sort of command or urging or teaching or challenge from God that's related to something that we don't like or something that we feel like limits us in some way. What we think is God is keeping something good for me. And it's really a lie on two levels. The first is, it's a lie because most of the time, God is not actually keeping us from something good. He's keeping us from something bad, right? There is something that is poisonous to us, and we can't see it. It's something that if, if we spend our time that way, or we spend our money that way, or we, we use our body that way, or, or we give our attention to that thing, it's actually going to hurt us or destroy us, even though we can't see it. And so we think God is restricting us when he's actually rescuing us from something we can't see. But on a deeper level, what is so fascinating, and I think at times perplexing about this story is that the tree of knowledge and good of good and evil, it seems to represent something that's actually good. Something that, that Adam and Eve will need. Something that they should desire. Like wisdom is something God wants to give to his people. He wants to give it to his children. And so let me ask a really interesting question. What if God actually intended to give this wisdom to Adam and Eve? All along. 
What if he wasn't actually withholding it from them or keeping it from them indefinitely? But he wanted them to be patient. He wanted to give it to them in his own time or in his own way. What if he wanted them to recognize, like Solomon, that they needed wisdom and it needed to come from God, that it's a gift that only God can give. It's not something they can take for themselves. That whenever we take something for ourselves, what we're really doing is we're trying to be like God, as the snake said. But what if the tree of knowledge is actually a test to see whether they will seek wisdom from God and then wait for him to give it to them or whether they'll try to take it for themselves apart from God? I mean, how about this? What if the tree of knowledge is actually the way that they will receive wisdom and knowledge between what is right and wrong, but the way they actually receive it is by not eating the fruit instead of eating it? Because by not eating the fruit, what they're doing is they're saying, we trust you, God, as the author and giver of wisdom. And the first principle of wisdom is to trust God as the author and giver of it first. Uh, here's another way to look at it, if I could just change the Bible a little bit. Uh, if the first tree is the tree of life with God, where you eat from it and it leads to eternal life, what if we called the second tree the tree of autonomy from God? Where you eat from it, it leads to death. Do you know what autonomy is? Autonomy, if you were to look it up in the, in the dictionary, is the right of self-government. Which just means it's the right to do whatever I want. It's the right to, to eat from that tree if I want to, and you can't tell me not to. Right? It's the right to make my own rules. The right to say, I don't really like your rules, and I don't want to play by them. Autonomy is the right to be my own God. And that's what it means or meant when the serpent said, if you eat from this tree, you will be like God. Now, <clears throat> we don't have time to read the rest of Genesis 3, but it describes the consequences of autonomy. Uh, shame, guilt, Regret, broken relationships with one another between humans, broken relationship with God, broken relationship even with the very creation, which is now cursed because of us, the trees and the plants and the environment. We have a broken relationship with because of this desire to make our own rules and have our own autonomy. And the ultimate consequence is Capital D, death. The death that Paul talks about because what we are doing when we assert our autonomy is we are cutting ourselves off from the very source of life. And the rest of the Bible tells a story of a God who is like a father working to redeem and restore us from our lives of autonomy back into a trusting relationship with him. 
And you see, the tragedy of this story is not that it happened, but that it still happens every day in our lives. So let me close with a very personal question. In what part of your life right now are you asserting autonomy from God? Where are you saying, I don't like your way, I want to do it my way, right? And maybe you're saying it like boldly and defiantly and sort of shaking your fist at God, but I know most of you and you're not doing that, right? We don't do it that way. Usually, usually it's so much more subtle than that. Would you ask that question today? Wrestle with it. Where am I asserting autonomy? And maybe would you be willing to admit, God, I don't, I just want to do this my way and, and I need to trust you with it. And I want to come back into the life that you offer, the life with you. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> God, I pray that you would um, help us to search our minds and our hearts for ways that we have trusted in ourselves and our own autonomy apart from you, thinking that we know what's best. And God, help us today to see that you know what's best for us, not because you're a tyrant, but because you're our loving Father. And you love us more than we love ourselves. And you do want what's good for us. And you want to give us wisdom and insight and understanding and grace and forgiveness and love and a flourishing life. And so help us to do whatever it takes to return to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.